I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hello and welcome to Curious Canadian History. I'm your host... David Boris. The fortress of Louisbourg was once thought to be one of the finest fortresses of its day. It was considered a marvel of engineering, a dominating position that helped secure French control over the eastern seaboard of modern-day Canada. Today, the fortress is one of the most important historical places in the country. It was at the center of French control over what would become Canada and was the site of several key battles. The story of Louisbourg sheds light on the decades-long colonial struggle for empire in North America. In fact, the siege of Louisbourg in 1758 would play a key role in determining the outcome of that conflict in North America and ultimately the entire fate of the continent. This is Season 9, Episode 10, The Beginning of the End, the 1758 Siege of Louisbourg. Today's book recommendation is titled The French and Indian War, Deciding the Fate of North America. This book was written by Walter R. Bornman. It was published by HarperCollins in 2006. Our story begins in the middle of the Seven Years' War, or what is often referred to as the French-Indian War when referring to the North American theater. This global conflict eventually pulled in all the major powers of Europe, though generally this conflict revolved around the global rivalry for empire between Britain and France. Now, the war officially broke out in 1756, though several smaller battles had already erupted in North America as far back as 1754, between British and French forces and their colonial and indigenous allies. Word of fighting in North America arrived in Paris and prompted the French to reinforce their position in North America, but also go on the offensive against British imperial territory elsewhere. Thus, with word of French reinforcements being sent to North America, 
along with the news that in May 1756, a French force had landed in Minorca, which was a Mediterranean island that was then in possession of the British, Britain officially declared war, and the Seven Years' War began. Some historians have even referred to the Seven Years' War as the first true world war of the pre-industrial era. Without diving into the details of the global conflict, let's take our focus to North America. By the outbreak of the war, the French had spent decades consolidating their position within their North American colonial holdings. They had constructed a vast series of forts stretching from Montreal all the way to present-day Pittsburgh. These forts, though not manned by large numbers of French regulars, were supplemented with Canadian colonial troops and indigenous allies. While these forts certainly stamped French authority throughout the Ohio Territory, the Great Lakes, and southern Quebec, there was a significant logistic flaw to the infrastructure. That being that all the forts relied on supplies, material, and reinforcements from Montreal and Quebec. And Montreal and Quebec relied on the same stuff from France. Thus, the St. Lawrence River and access to transportation routes across the Atlantic were vital for French survival in North America. One needs to remember that most of both French and British North American holdings was simply vast wilderness. There was very little road infrastructure, and thus waterways were the most effective transportation routes of the time. For anyone contemplating war against the French in North America, it was clear that Quebec and its imposing citadel and fortress was the key to everything. If the British could capture Quebec, they could fundamentally threaten the entire French hold on all of the French colonial possessions. The French, of course, understood this too. And so back in 1713, at the end of the War of Spanish Succession, the French began construction on one of the most impressive fortresses of its time, Louisbourg. This was on modern-day Cape Breton Island, but back then, this island was under French rule, and it was known as Ile Royale. Louisbourg was not completed until 1740, but when it was finally operational, it was often referred to as the Dunkirk of America, in reference to the imposing fortress at Dunkirk, on the coast of northern France. In fact, by the beginning of 1758, Louisbourg was considered the strongest fortress in French or British North America, yet it did have its weaknesses. Cost-cutting during construction meant that some of the mortar used in the walls was of bad quality, and thus, along some stretches of the wall, the stone ramparts were actually torn down and replaced by earthworks, so the use of dirt, sod, and other natural materials to build fortifications. The entire circuit of fortifications was about two and a half kilometers in total length. Most of the buildings inside the walls were built of wood, while a dozen or so were made of stone. The strongest stretch of the walls was on the landward side, so facing west-northwest, extending about 1,100 meters. This strong stretch of fortification contained four bastions 
and in front of the curtain wall was a glacis, so a gently sloping bank extending down from the outer wall of the fortress. And this glacis ended in a marsh as well as an adjacent pond. So all of this meant that this stretch was exceedingly difficult to assault directly. Towards the harbor side, however, there were some clear vulnerabilities. In particular, the ground offered some high points for any attacking enemy, which in turn offered advantages when assaulting the fortress, specifically in bombarding it. You put your cannons and your artillery on these high points, and you can suddenly bombard different stretches of the town. The shoreline along either side of the fortress was rocky and uneven, making it difficult for an attacking force to carry out an amphibious landing. The French had also set up defensive positions at key points along this craggy shore. Louisbourg was an incredible strategic asset for the French. Militarily speaking, it allowed a French fleet to control access to the Gulf of St. Lawrence, and thus the St. Lawrence River itself. A fleet at Louisbourg could also sail out to interdict British ships traveling across the Atlantic to and from Halifax, which was a major British naval base at the time. Furthermore, Louisbourg became a key commercial hub for the French Empire, particularly, though not exclusively, in fish. And thus, this fortress was both a financial and military jewel in the crown of the French North American Empire. Now, it's not like the St. Lawrence River was the only way to access Quebec. There were a few other options. There was a land route that followed the Hudson River inland to Lake George, then up through Lake Champlain to the Richelieu River. And this sort of south-to-north direction, north-south direction, is often referred to as the Champlain Corridor. There was also a route that went overland to Lake Ontario and then into the St. Lawrence past Montreal towards Quebec, so going west to east or downriver. But both these routes were tremendously taxing logistically. The simple fact was that traveling overland with even a small force required an incredible amount of supplies and energy and took frankly, a very long time. Sending a fleet through the Gulf of St. Lawrence into the St. Lawrence River to attack Quebec directly was simply the most feasible, logical, and efficient way of assaulting that bastion of French colonial power. Now, the French fleet, while certainly not as powerful as the British Navy, was still formidable enough that if a British fleet attempted to bypass Louisbourg, it could, at the very least, be bottled up in the St. Lawrence, with British supply lines being continually harassed, and then ultimately the British fleet being trapped once winter set in. The bottom line was, Louisbourg had to be captured. This would deny the French a significant naval presence on the East Coast, and in turn open the door to the St. Lawrence River, which in turn exposed Quebec to attack. It's also important to mention that Louisbourg had fallen once before. Back in 1745, the British successfully captured it during the War of Austrian Succession. 
it was returned to the French later on in exchange for territory in Europe and India. So the British certainly had an idea of what to expect and how to go about conducting a siege of the fortress. In fact, as early as 1757, the British assembled a fleet to capture it, but word of significant French reinforcements both on land and at sea led to the cancellation of the attack. However, later that same year, new leadership arrived in Halifax. Lord Geoffrey Amherst and Admiral Edward Boscoin. The arrival of new leadership in Nova Scotia also coincided with new political leadership back in London. William Pitt, uh, Pitt the Elder, had become leader of the House of Commons in June of 1757 and became effectively the informal leader of the government of the day. With Pitt's ascension to power, he shifted focus on Britain's war effort to North America. In fact, he was quoted as saying, it is in America that England and Europe were to be fought for. With this shift in focus, Pitt ordered significant reinforcements to North America in the form of ships, soldiers, and materiel. And it was Pitt who ordered a renewed focus on the capture of Louisburg. Amherst was the man placed in charge of the overall expedition, while Boscoin was going to be in charge of the naval assets for the expedition. Now, under Amherst were three generals, Edward Whitmore, the infamous Charles Lawrence, that's the man who ordered the deportation of the Acadians, and finally, the soon-to-be world-famous or infamous General James Wolfe. Now, Wolfe, of course, would die leading the British forces at the Battle of the Plains of Abraham. Curious Canadian history. We'll be back after the break. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hey, folks. I know that when it comes to commercials, most people find it annoying to have a great story being broken up. But the simple fact is, this podcast relies on those commercials to fund more episodes of this podcast. It's just simply the way it works for us. We are an independent podcast. We don't get paid to do this except in the revenue we earn from the commercials. And I get it. When a good story is rolling along and then it breaks to commercials, I can understand the frustration in that. So for those of you out there, that want a commercial-free option for Curious Canadian History, I have the solution for you. If you go to patreon.com, P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com, and you search for Curious Canadian History, and you sign up, you will get commercial-free content. 
So all you got to do to sign up, though, is commit to donating one, two, or five bucks to the podcast every episode that we release. If you sign up and you commit to donating for every episode, you will receive those episodes ad-free. And here's the cool thing is Patreon is like an app on your phone. So just like you go to your podcast app on your phone, let's say if you're on Spotify or Apple, you can also go to your Patreon app on your phone as well. And boom, there you have all the episodes ad-free. It's an easy and inexpensive way to access this material without the commercial breaks. So go to patreon.com slash curious Canadian history today and get your ad free content. Now back to the regularly scheduled program. In preparation for the British attack, a massive program of supply and logistics was undertaken. Halifax was designated the assembling point, and troops and supplies started coming in from England, Ireland, Philadelphia, New York, and Boston. Now, interestingly, many of the supply ships that were coming in were actually unprotected by the Royal Navy, and this was something that could have resulted in significant problems were the French to attack these supply ships. Yet, the British gambled on the fact that the French would be preoccupied with reinforcing their own position and not able to interdict British supply routes. This gamble paid off in the British favor. While the French may have missed a golden opportunity to disrupt British supply efforts, the British were not going to let a similar opportunity pass them up. As the expedition was gathering in Halifax, word got out that the French were preparing several reinforcement convoys to sail to Louisbourg from Europe, and the British thus sent a combined naval squadron to interrupt this reinforcement attempt. Three French convoys sailed out of France from Brest, Rochefort, and Bordeaux, while two squadrons sailed out of Toulon. The force sailing from Toulon in southern France was damaged and then bottled up in the Mediterranean. From Brest, Rochefort, and Bordeaux, only limited reinforcements were able to escape the attention of the British Navy sent to interdict it. All the while that the British were hampering French reinforcement efforts, British ships kept arriving in Halifax, loaded with soldiers and supplies. The British effort at disrupting the French reinforcement attempt would become a major factor in deciding the ultimate outcome of the battle. Now, William Pitt had hoped that the expedition would be ready to sail by April of 1758, yet delays naturally occurred, and it wasn't until late May 1758 that the expedition finally set out. The French force in Louisbourg that was to meet this British expedition was a mixed bag. There was about 2,500 regulars in the fortress, about 500 militia, and about 2,500 sailors or naval personnel. The 11 ships in the harbor, including six ships of the line, so top-class warships, meant that the French could bring about 540 guns to bear on an attacking enemy, with another 240 guns from the fortress itself. As well, dozens of other guns and batteries were established throughout the harbor area on little islands and points throughout. 
even though the French fleet was small in comparison to the British, any enemy sailing too close to the harbor was going to be subject to withering fire. The harbor's entrance was about half a mile wide, and once in the harbor, it ran for several miles in a northeast to southeast direction. The fortress lay at the western end of the harbor, while the eastern end of the harbor's entrance was known as Lighthouse Point. In between this western and eastern end was Ile de l'Entrée, or as the British called it, Battery Island, which is still the name today. The guns on this island, hence why the British called it Battery Island, were a significant threat to any invading fleet to enter the harbor. Basically, this island was sort of the front line of the defensive structures in and around Louisbourg. Now, the British certainly outnumbered their opponent. They had roughly 11,500 soldiers and sailors, 157 total ships, with 21 of them being ships of the line. The British plan of attack was for three separate contingents to land at three different places west of Louisbourg. The key landing was going to be led by Wolfe, and Wolfe was to land at a place called Freshwater Cove, about two miles west of the town. Now, this was intended to effectively cut off Louisbourg from any landward reinforcements while taking the defenses in the flank. So most of the fortress guns were pointed out to sea, and this meant that the landward side had less firepower. Wolfe had about 3,300 men to launch his initial amphibious assault, and he was supported by guns of several ships of the line. The French, in anticipation of the British landings, had built up earthworks and batteries along the shoreline from Louisbourg to Freshwater Cove. For the French, though, it was a guessing game of where the British were going to direct the main landing, and they were forced to thin their defensive lines in order to cover any number of potential spots. Before the sun came up on the 8th of June, Wolfe's contingent began its push to the shore. The French had several light cannon and about 1,000 soldiers defending Freshwater Cove. The soldiers were behind fairly well-entrenched earthworks. British ships bombarded the French positions, and then Wolfe and his men hit the beach. While the French fire was certainly withering and intense, several of Wolfe's transports were able to land on a small beach to the extreme right of the cove, which offered natural shelter from the French guns. When Wolfe spotted this, he directed his entire landing force to that spot. While things did get congested and several boats hit the rocks, the main body of Wolfe's force landed, and soon after he was reinforced by Lawrence's detachment. The British were now on Ile Royale. At this point, the French realized they had lost control of the cove and began an ordered retreat back to Louisbourg, abandoning their cannon while doing so. With the French at Freshwater Cove retreating, the rest of the French force along the shoreline fell back to the fort to consolidate their defensive position. In fact, with the successful British landing, the French called in almost all of their outposts back within the walls of Louisbourg to defend the fortress itself. The French commander at Louisbourg, Chevalier Ducourt, 
believed that if Louisbourg could hold for a sufficient amount of time, it would delay the British enough to stave off an attack on Quebec for at least one year. And hopefully within that one year, French reinforcements would rebalance the tide. On the 12th of June, Wolfe seized Lighthouse Point, as the French had also abandoned that in order to focus on the defense of the fortress. And the British promptly positioned their own guns on Lighthouse Point. Once they were in place on the 19th of June, the British began to bombard Battery Island until its guns were silenced on the 25th. However, the French fleet remained intact, and no serious entrance into the harbor could occur until the guns of the French ships were silenced as well. Now, French fears of the British entering the harbor and attacking the fortress from its seaward side led to the decision to sink four of the French ships in the harbor entrance in order to prevent a naval assault, effectively creating a sort of man-made breakwater. In hindsight, this would prove to be a poor move. The British were already encroaching by land, and the scuttling of their own vessels simply denied the French mobile firing platforms to adjust to British maneuvers. While all of this was going on, the British on land were conducting standard siege operations, moving ever closer to the walls of the fortress via a series of trenches, while constructing a road that could help transport siege material from the shoreline supply drops to the expanding British trenches. The last remaining spot held by the French outside of Louisbourg was a place called Green Hill. This was just to the west of the fortress. And on the 26th, Amherst ordered a general assault on the position. Green Hill was taken without the loss of a single British soldier, and siege operations now accelerated. As the days went on, the British slowly closed the noose around Louisbourg. The French launched a large-scale sortie on the 9th of July, but this was beaten back after vicious fighting. On the 14th of July, the French snuck one of their ships out of the harbor and passed the British blockade. This ship was ordered to head straight to France to deliver news of the precarious French position. On the 21st of July, with the British now 200 meters from the outer walls of Louisbourg, a British shell landed on the Celebre, a 64-gun French man-of-war which set the ship ablaze. This fire then spread to two other ships. The loss of all three ships accounted for just over 200 French guns. A day later, a shell pierced a building that contained the governor's residence, a chapel, and the officer's barracks. And then the next day, a British shell landed in the main barracks itself and set it ablaze. By the end of the 24th of July, British fire had not only started fires within the town and on French ships, but it had even brought down two of the defending bastions. Then, in perhaps the most dramatic moment of the siege, on the 25th of July, 600 British sailors rode silently into the harbor and captured the two remaining French battleships. One of the ships had already been run aground and thus could not be towed out, so it was scuttled by the British. The other one, however, was towed back to the British lines as a spoil of war. 
At this point, the French situation was desperate. Stretches of the walls had been breached by British fire. About one quarter of the French garrison was wounded or dead. And its naval presence had been destroyed. While the British prepared to launch a final assault against Louisbourg, including an attack by the British squadron sitting in the harbor's mouth, a message from the French arrived asking for terms of surrender. Now, some negotiation ensued. The British refused the initial French terms, and when the British counterterms were presented to the French, Drocourt seemed to have initially rejected them as well, saying he would rather defend against an actual assault. However, it seems that an appeal from Jacques Prévost, one of the leading administrators within Louisbourg, finally convinced Drucourt to accept the British terms. Thus, the French formally surrendered Louisbourg, and on the 27th of July, the main gate to the fortress, referred to as the Dauphin's Gate, was opened and the British entered the town. The French soldiers and sailors captured were sent to England as prisoners of war. When it surrendered, the garrison contained just under 10,000 people, 3,400 soldiers, 2,600 sailors, and 4,000 civilians. The British counted 222 pieces of cannon captured, 11 mortars, 4,000 shells, 5,000 barrels of powder, 5,000 barrels of beef and pork, and 10,000 barrels of flour. The entire operation cost the British 172 killed and 354 wounded. The French had 102 killed, 302 wounded, and nearly 6,000 soldiers and sailors captured. What was once thought to be one of the most advanced fortresses of its day had fallen again to the British. The St. Lawrence River was now open to the British Navy. Quebec was in the crosshairs, and both sides prepared for what would be the final battle to decide the fate of North America. I want to thank you all for listening today. Don't forget, you can find me on Twitter at Doc Boris. That's at D-O-C-B-O-R-Y-S. You can find us on Facebook. You can find us on Instagram. You can find us on Patreon. And you can find us on all podcast listening devices. And please do not hesitate to write and leave a comment. We love to hear from you. I'm David Boris. Stay curious, friends.